Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and you can better believe I'm on my best behavior right now because I have a sheriff in my studio. Sheriff Jim Stewart is with me, as as well as Monica Groves. This month is Domestic Abuse Month, so we're talking about domestic abuse, and I'm awfully glad to have them back here in the studio. They were here about a year ago, and I think it was about a year ago this time. It was Domestic Abuse Violence Month. And here we are again. Time flies, doesn't it? Yes, it does. It certainly does. Welcome to the show. Mm-hmm. Thank so you. let me ask a number of questions because I know this topic is uh, very challenging. It's hard to hear about, and it's really important. Fair? Absolutely. All right. Sheriff Stewart, I'll start with you. Um, I know you speak out all the time against domestic violence in so many settings. Help us just understand, again, why this topic is so important to you. Well, I'm, I'm privileged to have that voice and to be able to be a voice for our community. And so it's important to have these partnerships to reach out on a, a variety of scales, whether it's events, whether it's at the state level or the national level or the local level. Uh, it's important to me because it does impact so many, so many lives. Uh, it's not just a part of so many people's history, but once it's there, it's a part of your future. And my concern is when it becomes a generational challenge. So when we see uh, the grandparents might have been the first person to have been arrested, and then it becomes the, the 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 parent or the father. And then at some point in time, if there isn't some form of intervention, tragically we see that at some point the youth are caught up in it either as suspects or victims. And so knowing that their future includes all of us, we need to do what we can to try to put a stop to this. And real quick, additionally, it's also been a part of my youth. And so as I think it's real important for me to... Uh, pay it forward, if you will, as an, an intervener. All right. Can you elaborate on that just a little? Because you, yeah, you sort of said something that got my attention there. Yes, absolutely. So w- when I was uh, a youngster, my stepfather was rather abusive and okay. just add alcohol and oh. and you'd throw in a great big question mark, exclamation mark to see how the <laughs> evening would turn out. And uh, so okay. knowing that and recognizing even as a youth that I, I was fortunate that I saw, okay, this is broken. This isn't how people are supposed to live or behave. Um, and I vowed that my family would never be exposed to that type of thing. And so fast forward again, I, I think it not only helped me hopefully serve better in the law enforcement capacity, but to hopefully also be a change agent on a broader scale in the community. Yeah, I can imagine that works very much to the advantage of the situations you have found yourself in over the decades in, in law enforcement when there's been a domestic abuse or domestic violence call. Yes. Yeah. So thank you. All right, um, Monica. Mm-hmm. Um you are at the dwelling place, and it's a it's a safe place for women and children. And there's it places is. like the dwelling place all over the country, right? There are uh, there are crisis shelters That's all over the country. Yeah. The dwelling place is a little different because it's a transitional shelter. It's a, a home, actually, that women come to out of crisis shelters. And the reason it, it's different is crisis shelters tend to have a strict time limit, you know, 45 days, 70 days, mm-hmm. and then a woman has to find another place to be. So it's really not time to heal or to think about the future or even prepare for the future. It just gives them a time, a place to be safe. And it's very important. And we need that network, no doubt about it. 
But as far as the trauma that comes out of domestic abuse and equipping a woman to be able to live independently and not go back, uh, transitional housing with support systems like the dwelling place gives women the time they need. And so we don't put an end date on that. Okay. Uh, we say, okay, let's have you come in, take time to heal, assess what your needs are, and then start to set goals to help you get to the point where you can live free of abuse. And that means a car, a job. Mm-hmm. It means medical help. It means uh, mental help. It means uh, all of the things that will contribute toward a successful life. And that can be upwards of two years. Yeah, because if you had a 45-day limit and then you were going to go back into a domestic abuse situation, what value was the 45 days, despite a little reprieve? It saved your life for 45 days. That's what I mean. Yes, I mean, that's exactly. a good thing. That's it's a good, good thing. thing. Yeah. But it takes often, the statistics bear out what are that they? it's seven to nine times before a woman actually leaves wow. a dangerous situation. And often they'll leave, truly leave, when they see it impacting children. So seven to nine times? Incidents? Seven to nine times of leaving. Oh, that doesn't of mean incidents. They can oh. sustain many incidents. Okay. But it's we actually. See that all the time on our side of the arena. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Let's talk about that side of the arena, uh, Sheriff Stewart. When you are in that situation of a call of domestic violence, um, how do you enter into that conflict? I mean, how, how, how are you trained or how are the men trained and men and women trained to address these situations? Well, certainly any situation you go into cautiously and. Uh, domestics can be some of the most volatile situations that anyone can go to. We train our folks to certainly uh, approach cautiously, separate the involved parties, gather the facts, and then becomes the the intervention. And hopefully um, it hasn't been a case of violence, so we can provide the resources such as the dwelling place to be able to get them on the right path, hopefully for some healing and, and some fixing of the relationship, if you will. Um, but otherwise, we would go down the path of arrest and follow through in court processes and things like that. Mm-hmm. It, it can be uh, a very challenging time for the, the deputies and officers when they go back to the same place repeatedly. Oh, I bet. As Monica said, you know, you want to be there, you want to help, and yet you also understand the uh, psychological aspects of being stuck in that relationship. And she's absolutely right. It's it's oftentimes when the kids are exposed to it or the kids become that victim that becomes a turning point to help them get out of that situation. Mm-hmm. How do the officers de-escalate the situation? I mean, I know there's got to be some, obviously, training where you say when you arrive at right. well, the, the house. The, the parties are always apartment. separated. That's one of the first things in order to allow them to speak their truths, if gotcha. you will. Gotcha, okay. Um, and once the parties are, are separated, it usually automatically diffuses a little bit. Not always. Um, but uh, maybe a little bit. And then it hopefully allows the opportunity for uh, the victims to be able to speak more frankly. And when we're arriving in the heat of the moment, those excited utterances is what we call them, but those excited statements uh, typically flow a little more freely than they would (laughs) in a controlled setting or certainly when the the, um, The filters are off. Aggressor is still in the room, those type of things. So the de-escalation is a big part of it and trying to ask the right questions to get to the source of it. And we're fortunate in... In our county, we were one of the first in the Midwest to have what we call a lethality assessment. And it's basically a series of questions where we're able to identify not just what happened, but the likelihood of this being a really bad and long-term situation for the victim. Mm -hmm. I'm with Sheriff Jim Stewart and Monica Groves. Monica works at the dwelling place, and Jim is the uh, Inanoka County uh, Sheriff's Office. Um, Let me ask you, uh, Monica, with 
COVID and everything else and all the stress that's been placed on our world in the last two and two and a half years or so, um, have the indicators that we see with domestic abuse, is it increasing or decreasing? There is uh, right now, it's very hard to find any space in a shelter. There are women who contact us, so contact churches, yeah. you know, they're looking for a place to go. And the word that I have received is that there's no room, mm. that they are having to find alternative places that can be couch hopping from a friend's house to another depends. And that also can be dangerous with the violence level. But if they're needing to get out and find a place, um, motels, uh, a friend, a place to get is um, kind of their backup plan. So capacity right now would indicate that it's a very strong. Mm-hmm. It's it's hard to say increase, decrease, okay. I think. Okay. It really is because there's such a spectrum. And, you know, we think about the most dangerous situations, people getting out running for their life. But there are also people who get out because their finances have been depleted from them. They've experienced financial abuse, mm-hmm. um, spiritual abuse, um, psychological abuse, and those are all hidden things. I mean, you'd look at someone walking down the street and you'd think, well, they're just fine, but they're not. They're living in fear. They're um, living in a sense of being depleted or Mm -hmm. diminished in a way that is extremely scary. And so we see the spectrum. And of course, it's, it's when it's physically dangerous, you want someone to get out. But all of those forms of abuse are valid. And they all um, they all need to have healing. They they all create their own trauma. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you, Sheriff Stewart. After Monica just shared what she just shared, there's I'm wondering if there's a ripple effect in the community that is caused by this domestic abuse and violence. Absolutely, we know that what happens in the home affects our lives every day. Mm-hmm. I mean, whether you've had a great morning or a bad morning or whatever happened mm-hmm. the night before. Um, the Vikings historically have shown us that what happens in your home might, <laughs> might have a carryover. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, so it, you'll bring that into your workplace. You'll bring that to church. You'll bring that to your organizations that you're a part of. And tragically, as I alluded to before, you'll also see that in those generational implications. So when the kids are exposed to it and when one and I believe it's 15 kids are exposed to uh, domestic violence – that becomes a normative behavior and it can never, domestic violence can never be seen as a normal behavior. And so when that's what they're exposed to, suddenly that becomes a part of their lifestyle, which also becomes a part of our community. And so it's so important for um, Dwelling Place and, and our community partners to help us continue to get this word out. Thank you for this opportunity. Again, awareness is a start, but we need to be more actively engaged as well because it is a completely community-wide ripple effect. Mm-hmm. So true. Sheriff Jim Stewart and Monica Groves are my guests. It is Domestic uh, Abuse Month. And if you have uh, a comment or would like clarification on something that you heard, you can uh, send it over on the text line, 877-933-2484. Otherwise, we'll be right back with Jim and Monica in just a minute. We would love for you to share your story about why you love Faith Radio and what has Faith Radio changed the way you think about something or even how you live. We want to hear from you. Your story can encourage others and glorify God. 
Share what you love about Faith Radio by calling 877-933-2484 and leaving a message today. If you just joined the program, we're talking to Sheriff Jim Stewart and Monica Groves. We're discussing domestic abuse, domestic violence. We see it in many settings, and this is Domestic Abuse Month, so it's an important topic to discuss, although it's a very difficult one to discuss. So let me ask you, Monica, when it comes, I know there's individual, uh, there's groups, there's churches. How do we... How do we make a difference here? Well, that's a loaded question. It is a big one. (laughs) And gee, I wish I had a really great answer for you. But I do think that we we need to be aware and we need to be talking about the reality of this. Um, And at the same time we're talking about it, we need to identify what are healthy relationships, what are the things that um, protect people from living in an environment where there's abuse. It's kind of like... You know, if you want to address counterfeit money, you don't study the counterfeit, you study the real thing. So in a way, you have to be able to identify the signals, but you identify it by knowing what is healthy, what is good, and uh, what is the right way to treat someone. And it's usually not where power and control are taking away from um, another person their choices or their dignity or their respect. It's... uh, taking time to listen, be kind, sound familiar, mm-hmm. all those things. <laughs> yeah, sure does. Yeah, so um, I think that is one place where the church, uh, with, within the family, within businesses, when we emphasize the kinds of things that are healthy, we can recognize when something is fearful or when someone is living in an anxiety. You know, Sheriff Stewart was talking about the impact on youth it's proven that children that live in a situation of abuse, they don't sleep well, they don't eat well, they don't learn well, and so then they lag behind in their education, they lag behind, they grow up in fear and anxiety. Well, of course they do. Of course they do. And so that that would say, if we want our children to be able to move forward in a healthy and stable way, we need to make sure that their environment is such that they are getting the rest, they are getting the things that they need to grow and be healthy. Mm-hmm. I mean, we know these things, but applying them really takes attentiveness. And educators will will recognize the signals, but then what can they do about it? If they see signals, what do they have at their fingertips that they can refer or help a child or a mother or a father if there's abuse in a home? What do they do? Well, again, that's a loaded question. Well, and it depends on the environment. It depends on what they know and what they've been given mm-hmm. to use. Okay. Um, and identifying it. So as Sheriff Stewart said, awareness is huge. Yeah. Opening up the conversation. Um, I've had the privilege in my work of traveling to many churches. And sometimes I feel like I'm the only one who ever said domestic abuse in the church setting mm-hmm. because of the conversations wow. that I have with people afterwards. Mm-hmm. And... uh and I think we need to speak truth in love on this one and really open it up and recognize we are broken people. And there are a lot of broken patterns that happen in our homes. Mm-hmm. You know, there's nothing sadder than the example that a broken family comes to church, they put on the church face, everyone thinks that's wonderful, they get back in the car, and it's all evidently <clears throat> broken again, right? Mm-hmm. And so if we're 
calling it out and speaking it and saying, we need to help people be able to be honest about this and listen and believe them. I'd say one of the greatest gifts that the dwelling place gives women when they come and they share their story is they believe them. <laughs> yeah. They believe them. I bet. When they're telling it, I mean, the worst thing is you're telling something horrific in your life and people say, oh, it's not that bad. Or if you just did this, it would get better. Mm-hmm. Or if you could just, if you could just learn how to tolerate some of that or not make it a big deal, mm-hmm. it would go away. And those are lies. That doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So I think speaking truth is a big one and follow up and care. All right. So let me ask you, Sheriff Stewart, because I've had a couple messages come in on the text line already about um, men being victims of domestic abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, so how, if if this happens, the domestic abuse, and, and it's the men who are the victims, what forms do you usually see? And explain the psychology behind that. Well, men typically represent about 5% uh, statistically of the domestic uh, abuse situations. But we, we know that they're also much less inclined to report. Um, and we also, which is sad when we already know that, that female victims are already inclined to not report. But males uh, tend to be much less inclined to call 911 or even to tell a friend to tell somebody that's close to them for uh, fear of you know, it, it, it impacting their image and, or their manhood or their machismo or whatever you sure. want to call it, but it's it's going to have uh, that effect. And so um, it, it's a little harder sometimes for them to finally break down uh, when they are willing to get to that point and cross that line. Then there's, again, sometimes fewer resources, but there's some good ones out there. And it was called... Door of Hope. Thank you. Door of Hope yeah. in the Twin Cities mm-hmm. is an option that's out there for... Um, men that are caught up in the situation. Yeah. What does it look like for a man to be involved in domestic violence? What has happened that mm. you would go, ooh, that's domestic abuse or violence? Is it words? Is it is it physical, physical altercations? Is it Like any victim, it can be words. It can be physical. It can just be um, a state of oppression. It, but typically a, a victim is going to behave that way in which they appear to have someone else controlling them. They might be afraid to say something. They might be afraid to react a certain way. They might be afraid to um, even, uh, or they might not have possession of their own credit cards. There's so many different forms that it takes on. But uh, victimization is victimization, and that's you know, that's one of the messages we want to get out. Would be to encourage anyone who's caught in the situation, tell somebody, seek help. There's a lot of people out here, including us, who want to see your path become a better one and to help you become the person that you're created to be. Mm-hmm. I think one of the saddest things. Everything about this is kind of sad, mm-hmm. very sad. But when you're referring to it's a generational thing or when it happened in a, in a previous family and then it's brought into the next family and these kids are in, th- in the center of it. And they're, and if your home is not a safe sanctuary mm-hmm. where you can flourish and learn and grow and love and feel secure, I don't know how you get anything done. It is a vicious cycle. Oh, and it would have vicious, to be. Vicious cycle. Yeah. And <clears throat> honestly, it, it's sometimes hard to explain to new deputies, law enforcement who come into the field who came from a stable home. Mm-hmm. The first few times they knock on these doors or go to these calls, you can see the shock and awe on their face. They, they can't get their head around it to have, uh, you know, we went to one house quite a few years ago. I was a training officer and got a call of a violent domestic inside the house. Turns out it was a knife fight actually going on. A knife fight. Uh, we knock on the door, approach cautiously again. The door opens. And a picture, if you will, a Sunday, uh, Easter Sunday dress and on this you know, real cute little girl 
and she opens the door and looks up at this rookie deputy who was supposed to be running lead on this and says, what the F do you want? Wow. How, how old is this girl? Eight. Oh, wow. And so stunning. we recognize, when I talk about the generational stuff, that's life of experiences yeah. saying we need to intervene because that little girl needed a lot of help at that point in time. Um, and she wasn't even involved in the direct altercation. But clearly, that's not a healthy living environment no, in any way, form, or fashion. Very trauma. And it also points to the fact that it's across socioeconomic lines. Yes. Oh, yeah. So, you know, you might think, oh, this is this is a poverty issue. Not at all. No, it's everywhere. It's mm-hmm. wherever power and control are used against another person. And mm-hmm. narcissistic behavior, it's all about me and what I want. It doesn't regard what the other person needs. It's not preferring the other over ourselves. Mm -hmm. And it's actually harder for someone who lives in a higher socioeconomic standard to leave Mm -hmm. because it's harder for people to believe that it's going on there. And it's harder for them to be able to leave what might be security, economic security, but at the same point inside, they're like a skeleton of themselves because the character is gone. The life is gone. Mm -hmm. It's been sapped away. And that's tragic. Yeah, absolutely. You two have done an awesome job kind of playing ping pong, going back and forth. But I'm going to throw this question up, and whoever wants to answer it can answer it, okay? Mm-hmm. And the question is, is how do we, what do we do? How do we better address these um, domestic abuse uh, and, and break the cycle and the pattern? How do we do, how do, we do that? I'll, I'll jump in first, and you can go for it. <laughs> I'll follow. clean up where I fall. <laughs> um, I think one of the first things we do is support. Uh, groups like the Dwelling Place, because they're making that difference. They're educating our youth. They're making uh, a change in our communities. But the other part of it is, and I've been to uh, domestic violence um, events and presentations all across the country, and they're very well attended by mostly females. Mm. We need to get the men engaged in the fight. Monica's heard my man up talk, um, but I, I think that's a big part of it is men need to own that most suspects, most perpetrators are males. And in order for the culture shift to change, we need to own it. We need to man up and we need to be part of that change that says what is acceptable behavior. We need to make sure our our youth uh, that we care about, whether they're our own children or not, that all youth in our communities are, are taught of their value. This is how young men behave. This is what respect looks like, uh, that no one should be a victim, that if this is what the start of victimization looks like. And mm-hmm. make sure that you're protecting yourself. And just kind of that all-encompassing, mo- a little more holistic approach for our communities to make healthier uh, neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Monica Groves from The Dwelling House, I'll give you the final word. Oh, my goodness. Well, I I love the, the scripture that says, bind up the brokenhearted and set the captives free. Isaiah 61. Yes. Yep. And so I think we have to be diligent about recognizing the wounded ones and helping them and provide ways for them to truly heal know their worth and value and help them to find the better story that is really the God story that is there for them, but they didn't get to see it earlier or in whatever relationship they were in. And set the captives free, I think, applies to men and women, applies to families. It applies to cultures, thought systems that are um, so so bound that they don't see abuse. Mm -hmm. They don't see uh, when we are free, we're able to address something clearly. We don't have to live in fear. We don't have to live in anxiety. We live in the freedom of truth and love, and there gets to be joy and hope. And that's what I love to see. I know that's what the people at the dwelling place get to see over the period of time. And it is beautiful to see someone move into that. Thank you so much, Sheriff Stewart. Monica Groves, thank you so much. The dwelling place. 
uh, is where Monica works. We're going to take a little break and we'll be right back. After the show, you know, for lunch today, I had a frozen Greek uh, bar that was only 80 calories, but it had me thinking, uh, frozen Greek yogurt. Oh, wait a minute. I'm talking Greek today with Chris Palmer. Chris Palmer is not only a pastor, but he's an author. He's a Greek scholar, and he's an international teacher. And when we can have him on the show, we're always glad that he can join us. Chris, welcome. It's good to be with you, Bill. And, uh, were you eating Oikos yogurt? Is that what you were eating? I was not. I was eating Yasso. Y-A-S-S-O. It was quite good. Thank you. Thank you for asking. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I hope you enjoyed it. Hope you enjoyed it. I did enjoy it. Thank you for uh, for connecting with me on that. So I always uh, love learning Greek, and you are uh, so accessible. You make it so easy and fun to learn. And um, I'm just curious as to how your PhD work is going and what life is like for you and I know last time I saw you on a video conference call during COVID, you had long hair. Is it still long or did you cut it? No, actually, it's uh, it's cut soccer style now. So I'm going the other way and it's quite <laughs> short and uh, with little lines in it and stuff. So, yeah, we're, we're I'm going the other direction now that we're out of COVID. <laughs> oh, awesome. And then how's the PhD work going? About a year left. I'm writing one of my final chapters and uh, kind of matriculating through the book Revelation and, and, and it's going well i'm almost i'm almost done with this thing it's been four years of work so i can't wait for it to be finished i can't wait and i want to have you on the show so i can call you dr chris palmer oh i can't wait you'll be the first you'll be the first (laughs) good so let's learn some greek today okay so let's talk about superstition i think superstition is something that everybody is susceptible to i don't think any society even our western our most western societies our most um Societies given to modernity, where they kind of leaned away from that, are, are without any form of superstition. We, you know, there's people today they think just about the formal. Even Christians, as, as Christian people, we still are affected by superstition. I mean, um, there's some people where they you might be a Christian say, "Oh, there's a black cat. Maybe I have bad luck, or I don't walk under a ladder, or you spilled the salt." They're just these things that are in our societies that make us expect the worst or hope for the best, and. You know, we find a community in Christianity that was deeply inundated prior to their conversion experience with all sorts of superstition. That's the church in Ephesus. Mm-hmm. Historically, Ephesus is kind of an interesting place. I had the chance to be there a number of years ago, and it's sort of where you, all the different continents come together. It's where East meets West, Europe meets Asia, meets Africa. You have Africa sort of to the south. To the um, east, you have Asia, and to the west, you have you have Europe, and so it was just a cradle of of all sorts of beliefs. And it would be, in one sense, a challenging place to start a church, but um, the other sense, maybe the culture might be open to starting a church. And so Paul converts these Ephesians Christians, and they, they come to know him, and he writes a letter to them, and he's explaining to them who Christ is. And this letter has, you know, recently in scholarship been discussed as whether or not the Apostle Paul was uh, pointing to Christ and critiquing 
the Roman Empire. I think if he was critiquing the Roman Empire, he probably would have been subtle about how he did it, though Paul wasn't an anarchist. He was um, took advantage of his Roman liberties. And so he gets this point in, in chapter um, six where he says, take up the whole armor of God. So this is what we all like to bear down. We love this chapter. We love learning about the armor of God. And we, we kind of want to get right to the armor. Uh, but we overlook where he says, do this, take up the armor to command. In Greek, it means to pick it up and to put it on. It's not an option. He's speaking very strong here. He's speaking metaphorical. And he says, the, the reason you want to do this, this word that in the Greek is the word hoti. It's the clause. It's, 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 we would spell it H-O-T-I. It explains why you're doing something. The reason for doing this is that you may be able to stand in the evil day. And the Greek word here, evil, is te mera, te ponera. Okay, so it, it means evil day or the day that brings evil. And so Paul is the master communicator, speaking their language. They would understand what this meant, the evil day. To us, we, we maybe import our ideas into this. What would evil be for us? So we might think of Halloween or we might think of Devil's Night. But for them, this was a superstitious term mm. because the people were were very superstitious at that time, um, and it would it would to them technically refer to something that is quite unlucky. In in his Republic, Plato describes using this word an unlucky day at sea. Um, it, it would refer to them. They would un- they would understand it as a day where just something bad is just going to happen to them. And so again, like I said, they were very superstitious, and they just taking culture at that time really put a ton of emphasis on this. Um, they would look up things. I mean, they had their own version of the horoscope back then. Um, they had their own version of they would do certain things to sort of if they were going on a faraway trip or they wanted fortune, they were starting a family or just any endeavor in everyday life, they would do something superstitious. And so when something just wasn't going to go right, they would say that this is the day of evil. It's going to fall upon me. And so this is the mentality that pervaded culture. And Paul's telling them, look at, listen, you guys don't have any reason to fear superstition or a day encroaching on you and everything is going to fall apart because you have been grafted into Christ, you belong to Christ, and you're going to put on the armor of God. And we know that the armor of God um, is trusting in Christ. We know that the armor of God is the benefits that come from trusting in Christ. It's total, putting on the armor of God means putting on total reliance in Christ Jesus and depending on Him for your life. And when you depend on Him, it supersedes a life of superstition. So what Paul is really doing in this is he's calling them out of this life of worrying about bad luck happening to them because what they're really doing um, goes they're entrusting their future and they're trusting their destiny, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, into Christ Jesus. And so I think maybe the, the, the application that comes towards us in this time is that when we put our hope and we put our trust and our faith in Christ, we really don't have to be so much concerned about what our culture may tell us or any superstitious notions that we may have, whatever those might be. I yeah. think that's sort of what's going on here. So, Chris, fascinating subject, and I I believe and agree with everything you said, but I also am curious as to what you think is 
useful for us Christians to have conversations with people who are very superstitious. They have all kinds of fears and anxieties that are connected to superstitions, and you can try to dissuade them of these superstitions, but they don't go away easily, do they? They really don't. And, uh, you know, the sociological aspect of this is something I haven't looked into, I haven't studied, about why, you know, why it seems that human beings and societies are are, are prone to this. But I do think that um, superstitions can become very, can can really take a hold of us and it can become distracting in our walk with Christ. Perhaps the best way to minister to people who are involved in superstitions is to get at the root of of what may be causing those. And I don't want to speak in overgeneralizations here, but I do think many times fear is pervasive and, and causes that, or uh, a general sense of anxiety may cause that, or even insecurity may cause superstitions. Uh, I do believe that the more we're given to understanding what has been done for us in Christ or given to Scripture and given to the Word, the more we allow, perhaps if we understand Psalm 1, that the man or woman who meditates the law of God and makes it um, their, their portion through reading and meditation uh, becomes like that individual who's by the rivers of living water and the tree doesn't, ye- doesn't cease to yield in its season. So, I think with, with meditating Scripture and putting our focus and our emphasis on Christ and what Scripture tells us, as we do that, I, I do believe the Word of God uh, replaces, uh, takes a hold. I guess I, I should say this, our hope begins to take a hold of the Word of God and begins to take a hold of what's true and what we can count on, and it leans away from those things that are made up or cultural or just perhaps demonic or even um, fanatical, given to fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a matter of shifting our allegiance and our hope. Because I, I had this discussion today. I do believe everybody, we, we all think and we all believe in something. And it's just a matter of redirecting what we believe and what we think towards. I do think that's what Paul is helping the Ephesians to do, is redirect what they're placing their faith and they're focused upon in this in this chapter. Mm-hmm. Reverend Chris Palmer is my guest. You can learn more about Chris at lightoftoday.com. Lightoftoday.com. He's written a number of books, but we're talking about superstitions so far. We'll probably stay on this for a few more minutes, um, but you never know with Chris. You might want to switch subjects on me without any warning whatsoever, which is what I like about you, Chris. But there are certainly people that have a lot of idols, and I don't know if idols can become connected to superstitions. They might try to soft-pedal it and say, oh, they're not superstitions. I just have rituals I like to go through. It's like you sometimes hear quarterbacks that have to do the same rituals every before every game. Otherwise, they, they feel like they can't, they don't have the confidence. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, they wear the same pair of shoes or they wear the same pair. You know, there's something about the human experience that, that is given to us. And I'm not saying that all that is evil and demonic, but what, but, or that this is even what Ephesians is talking about. I mean, if there's a, a basketball player now and he wants to wear the same um, pair of shoelaces for the game or, or whatever, you know, it's, yeah. it's, I'm not going, I'm going to go as far as to say don't do that. But what I am going to say that the moment it begins to replace your trust in Christ and your ability for Christ to 
intervene in your life is the moment that um, where I think there begins to be a problem. And, and that was really the, the general consensus there in Ephesus. It was a major problem. They, they, they still had ties to a pagan culture yeah. where, where ritual was big for them. And Paul's calling them away from that. He gets into um, discussing in season six in verse number 12, really what is behind all that. I mean, he uses in verse 11, he refers to uh, the accuser, who was the devil or Diabolos. Uh, and then he, then he even kind of sort of partitions or parses that out and says, you don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers. And so this is referring to the day of evil, is referring to um, what's behind that, and that's cosmic powers or evil at that time. So Paul is calling them away from cosmic forces and in a society that was very well dominated by cosmic forces. He's calling them, and he's calling their allegiance to to Christ. Uh, and then he, he goes through the he goes through the armor of God, and then in the end, he mentions the spirit in verse seventeen, the sword of the spirit. And then in verse eighteen, he mentions the spirit again. So the double emphasis on the spirit right there shows that the spirit, or our trust and our reliance upon the spirit, is supposed to uh, take the place of our trust in ritual and superstition which in their case at the heart of it was demonic or cosmic. So I would say the exhortation could be more immediate for Christians that are still reading their horoscope or still involved in some sort of astrology or um, God's called us away from those things. Yeah, he uh, has. And, and for one reason, one main reason is they're empty and they're fruitless, uh, as we can see right here. Mm-hmm. Our, our trust should be in Christ, who really does hold our destiny, not the stars. Mm-hmm. Chris, when you talk about putting on the full armor of God, is that a daily activity, or is that once you come to faith in Christ, it's a one and done? I think the context he's referring, he's, he's writing to Christians, okay? So he's writing to people who, at this point, he would assume that they're Christians, and that's based upon the use of the language in Ephesians. It's very collective. He's talking to people that are in the faith already. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, then, and then he tells them, you know, there's this taking up the armor of God um, but by taking up the armor of God. What I think He's referring to here is an obedience that requires, that, that comes with following Christ. I think it's referring to a general trust in Christ. Um, that which is necessary for walking out the faith. I mean, God has left it up to Christians to work it out. I mean, that is the consensus in the Pauline epistles, is that there's still that working out. He tells the Philippian church, work out your faith with fear and trembling. And to them, it means to get along together. God doesn't do that for us. And there's certain things that we do as a response to our salvation. So for the, the, the for, he tells them to stand, having fastened the belt of truth. So he's likening the walk, the Christian journey, he's likening it to what a soldier must do. So we are in that army, just as the soldier is in that army, but there are things that we have to do as, as soldiers in our daily activities to be those soldiers of Christ. And and he kind of partitions it out again so that, so that we can be um, good soldiers of Christ. So I do think it's a daily activity that, that requires, but I think it also comes with the help of the Spirit. We're not alone in being soldiers. Mm-hmm. We have the help of the Spirit to do that. So anything he asks us to do, the benefit or the beauty part about it is that we have the Spirit's assistance to do that. So it does make it possible. Yeah, that makes me happy to hear. Reverend Chris Palmer is my guest. You can learn more about Chris at light of today.com. He's written many books. 
One is called Letters from Jesus, and it is subtitled Stories from the Seven Churches of Revelation. He's got a bunch more. You can learn about him, though, at lightoftoday.com. We'll take a short break, and we'll be back learning a little more Greek. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting myfaithradio.com. I'm back with Reverend Chris Palmer. He's a pastor, author, Greek scholar, and international teacher. He's also got a Light of of Today podcast. You can find out more about that at his website, lightoftoday.com. Chris, uh, let's dig back into some more Greek. What do you got for me? Okay, so let's talk about the book of Mark. Mark is really interesting. There's some Bible nerds that are out there right now, and they follow scholarship. Mark's become quite studied in recent explorations that people are looking at it as a a piece of apocalyptic. They're examining maybe there's, uh, when I say that, uh, they're looking to see how Mark's gospel now is related to uh, writing towards understanding this is maybe speaking about the eschaton passages in Mark that speak about the what takes place up until the final coming of God or the final coming of his kingdom, and was Mark emphasizing this in his writings? We typically approach Mark as a piece of literature, and, and I don't mean when I say piece of literature, by current literature, I don't mean it's not inspired or not infallible or not, et cetera, et cetera. I just, it, there's a literary form to it. That's really important to understand. Mark had a purpose. He was presenting Jesus as God's servant who was doing the work of the Messiah, as he had been sent to do. So if he's presenting Jesus as God's servant, then we're going to see servant-like behavior of Jesus, a servant-like emphasis. And the question is, um, who is Jesus and what has he come to do? And that's why when Mark opens up, it's very quick. It's the highlight reel. We see that there's the use of what we call in scholarship parataxis or the word and kai in Greek is constantly, if you read it, if you have an English Bible and you look at Mark, you'll see that 67% of the verses begin with the word and, 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 and. So it's just moving really, really fast, moving really, really quick. It's a use that, a style that Mark uses. And so as it opens up, you see all these things that Jesus does. He goes into the temple, he casts out a demon, he heals in the very first chapters. And then after Jesus sort of does all these things in chapter one, you get there in verse number 24, he goes into the temple and he casts out a demon, and it says in verse 24, the demon cries out, What have you, do, have you to do with us, Jesus of Denton, Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? And then he says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, we kind of just kind of move over this descriptor as though it's nothing, but in the Greek, this term, Holy One of God, Hagios to Theu, is very important, and it reveals to us just who Jesus is. Um, during Jesus' day, uh, Bill, there was a Greek version of the Old Testament. It was known as the Septuagint, and we call it the Alex X. It was been around since the second what, century. What do we BC. call it? 
Uh, so we call it, it's called the Septuagint, or mm-hmm. we, call, we refer to it, we abbreviate it with the Roman numerals, LXX, which means LXX. 70, because, yes. yeah, because 70 scribes worked on it uh, to make it what it is. They translated the Hebrew Bible into the Greek. And I, I brush up on my Roman numerals every Super Bowl. Every, I was going to say, that's when we get it out and try to figure <laughs> out what, what Super Bowl it is, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> um, this title, though, in the LXX, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, it appears in Psalm 106.16, which we find it's the priest Aaron. We see it used of Samson in Judges 16.17, and we see it of Elisha, or Elisha, in 2 Kings 4.9. And so three places in the LXX we find this title, the Holy One of God. So the question that we have to ask in examining this is, what does Aaron, Samson, and Elisha have in common, because if we can answer that question, then we can understand, admittedly, why the demon would call Jesus the Holy One of God, and why Mark would find it so Mm -hmm. important to to record this is happening. Perhaps the best uh, tie that we can draw is that these individuals, Aaron, Samson, and Elisha, had been sent by God with God's richest blessings to be a blessing to his people, they were especially equipped uh, to deliver Israel out of the hands of their enemies. So they just weren't average people. They had a special anointing. So Aaron, Samson, and Elisha were anointed. They were priestly, but they were also deliverers. And I know Samson had its fair share of problems, and I know that um, Elisha wasn't the Messiah, but we're not trying to extend the metaphor that far. We're just trying to take the good from those individuals, the one thing that was good about them. And again, that is that they were deliverers. And so immediately we find that Jesus is an anointed deliverer to deliver his people. And the, the demon knows that. And that would be especially important coming from the mouth of a demon because mm-hmm. he knew that he was indeed subject to authority. He was subject to the creator. And that reveals to us early on not just who that, that this individual is doing these works, so in a, but that he is somebody. He has an identity. He's not just anybody. He's not just an Elisha. He's more than an Elisha. He's not just a priest. He's more than a priest. He's not just a strong deliverer. He's more than a deliverer. He's the anointed Messiah. He's come as the final piece of the puzzle. Um, and so in, in a gospel where we're trying to discern God's servant, we see him doing servant-like activity as the ultimate servant. And this is going to lead us towards the cross, where the servant is going to do more than cast out devils. He's going to do more than what Aaron did and what Samson did Mm -hmm. and what Elijah did. He's going to do the ultimate servant-like activity that the Messiah was called to do. He's going to lay down his life. His hour of exaltation is going to come. And to the disciples' surprise, it's not going to be triumphing over Rome in Jerusalem through some sort of demonstration of military power, it's going to be the laying down of his life. And so it's kind of like a big surprise. If we had never read this before. We didn't know who Jesus was. We might think he was a religious leader from this term. This, this term might cause us to anticipate that he's going to be a, a, a religious or political leader, but then in the end we have the big surprise. He's not. He's actually going to lay his life down and die. Mm-hmm. It's going to give us a big surprise at the end who Jesus is. And that is, he is a he is the Messiah of God, and as the Messiah, he, the ultimate act of a servant, the, the big surprise, he, he lays his life down. Yeah. So good. Chris, uh, it's Pastor Appreciation Month. Do you feel appreciated? 
Uh, you know what? I still appreciate it when Rosie texted me today and asked me to be honest that somebody's thinking about me, and I feel appreciated. <laughs> <laughs> those, those folks in Minnesota are appreciating me. So yeah, I, was, well, I was certainly excited. Yeah, but you know how hard pastors can work, and, and sometimes it's long, long, long weeks, and sometimes yeah. they hear a lot of criticisms and not a lot of affirmation. Yeah, yeah I would say to anyone listening uh, today, appreciate your pastor. Send them a letter on a gift card somewhere, just let them know in a small way. I know we can't fully appreciate the work that pastors do with, and pastors have to make a lot of decisions about what to preach, what to teach, and um, people can be so picky. I didn't like the sermon because of this. I didn't like the sermon because of that. Just if they only knew what pastors went through, um, right. they might appreciate it and be less critical. So appreciate your pastor this month. Right. Thank you. Chris, always great to have you on. I appreciate you, and thank you for doing the show today. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you you for all you do. You bet. Thank you, Reverend Chris Palmer has been my guest. You can learn about Chris at lightoftoday.com. That's lightoftoday.com. And it is Pastor Appreciation Month, so they do have a hard job. And if you want to, uh, because it is Pastor Appreciation Month, you can send a note of encouragement and a coffee gift card to your pastor for free today. You can do that by signing up at myfaithradio.com. You can sign up at MyFaithRadio.com. And then if you also want to step out in faith and support the ministry of Faith Radio as a Faith Radio ambassador, we would love that. You give valuable feedback. You can help gather quotes from Faith Radio shows, and you can share Faith Radio in your community. You can also find out about that at MyFaithRadio.com. That's our show for tonight. I want to thank Patrick and the Monday Afternoon Mix and Uh, the sheriff and Monica. We had a wonderful time. And with Chris Palmer, I hope you have a wonderful night and I will see you tomorrow. Have a great night. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.